All right, all right, all right. <clears throat> Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum Stay on target. Maximum Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. My name is Daniel. My co-host is Robert. And today we're going to talk about Equilibrium with some special guests who have returned after joining us for Ghostbusters a few months back. And uh, this episode can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 40, and their previous appearance can be at actualanarchy.com slash 17. But before we introduce them, I want to say hello to Robert. How are you doing, my man? All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Hey, everybody. I'm back. Another episode. Actual Anarchy. We got the Liebermans. Yeah, I'm excited. We're doing Equilibrium. Doing fine. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, excellent. And uh, speaking of the Liebermans, how are you guys doing? It's uh, Lewis and Julie, and it's actually Julie Wilder. But, you know, you want to stick with the uh, patriarchy, matriarchy <laughs> type stuff and have your own separate names instead of a hyphen or whatever. <laughs> so <laughs> how are you guys doing, by the way? Thanks for coming back. We love you guys. And uh, we've, we've already spent a good hour with you on the pre-show, so if people want access to that, Support us on Patreon at the $5 or greater level, and you'll get access to videos of the pre-show and post-show where we go into Kathleen Turner Overdrive during the Frog's Gay. We have the documents, and you can get the documents as well. Uh, access via our tip jar page, actualanarchy.com slash tip jar. But here they are, Lewis and Julie. How you guys doing? Hey, guys. So good to be on. It's, uh, it's an honor as always. And, and uh, like I was just saying earlier, um, you know, we we told some jokes. We even told some libertarian jokes, some bad ones. So, so <laughs> but but yeah, if if, if uh, you want to subscribe to the Patreon, then then you get those those bad jokes like that. <laughs> but uh, always good to be on. Yes, thanks for having us back. Yeah, well, you guys were so good the first time that we uh, and we we didn't want it to end. Actually, I felt like we didn't spend as much time on Ghostbusters as we wanted to, even though it was an hour and a half. It was actually longer than the movie. <laughs> kind of what we do here. <laughs> and I was thinking days later, oh, I should have said this, and oh, I sh probably shouldn't have said that because that was really stupid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hindsight's a bitch, man. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, every time. That's me yeah, whenever that is, I open my mouth. So. Yeah, every single episode, <laughs> I feel that for sure. So, that's nothing. Yeah, so uh, just to uh, uh, remind the, the folks what you guys work on, where they can find your work, and anything else that you want to mention to them. I, I know you guys have a t-shirt store and a book that uh, is now on special. So Yeah, that's right. That's right. We, uh, we, we run libertopiacartoon.wordpress.com. Uh, it's just kind of a small outfit right now, but we do have a lot of artist interviews from, from a lot of libertarian, voluntarist, ANCAP people, and uh, we've got a lot of content on there, a lot of illustrations and memes and editorial type cartoons um, I'm a graphic artist and an illustrator so that's that's kind of that's my niche and but uh, I do have a book out there that's 99 cents right now it's it's filled with all kinds of of artwork it's it's designed to be a professional 
presentation of, uh, of libertarian slash voluntarist ideas. So if you're out and about and you want to bring it up on your iPad or uh, show other people um, a little bit about w what we're about, then, then that might be a good way to do it. And it's good for all ages, too, so kids as well would, would probably enjoy some of the content in there. And then we also do a t-shirt company that's got a lot of really awesome and amazing uh, t-shirt designs. Of course, coffee cups and mugs and even I think there's like some pillowcases and bed covers. <laughs> so, so if you want if you want a giant and cap man for a pillowcase, then that's where you can find it. But, but uh, if you if you want a cool, unique T-shirt that you're not going to find anywhere else, then then you can find it there too. So yeah, my my kids and my wife uh, end up sleeping on me as their pillow, so they have, they have their own organic and cap man. <laughs> hey, that works. Well, like I was saying, thank you guys for coming on, and we'll be posting links to all the things you mentioned, of course, in our show notes page, which can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 40. Uh, and we are going to talk about the movie Equilibrium. It's a Christian Bale movie that came out uh, something like 12 years ago now. And 2002, I think, is when it came out. Yeah, so right in the, the middle of the Bush era, and we'll be getting to the uh, Google description in a minute. That's kind of a, one of the tropes that we pull out is to read the Google description and, and, and laugh at how wrong it is, because usually... <laughs> fairly wrong. Uh, the one we did last week was for Pulp Fiction and it said that the movie was three hours long. Oh my. But, you know, whatever. Uh, well, and I, I do want to mention, um, Lewis, you created some artwork for this and that will, of course, be on the show notes page as well. But this content is EC10, rated EC10. It is forbidden and sex <laughs> offenders will be guilty of hate crimes and subject to immediately immediate processing, which, of course, means uh, execution. So. Yes. <laughs> Very yeah, Orwellian doublespeak going on in this film. Uh, anything else before we get to the Google description? Robert, do you have any uh, comments to make on your side? No, let's just get right into it, boys and girls. All right, fair enough. So Google description, Equilibrium 2002, fantasy drama film, one hour, 47 minutes, 7.5 in the IMDb, 38% Rotten Tomatoes. A lot of people didn't really like this movie, but Google users, 80% approve. Uh, in a futuristic world, a regime has eliminated war by suppressing emotions, books, arts, and music are strictly forbidden, and feeling is a crime punishable by death. Cleric John Preston, oh, and they spell cleric with a K, I don't know if that's <laughs> right, uh, Christian Bale, uh, is a top-ranking government agent responsible for destroying those who resist these rules. When he misses a dose of prosium, a mind-altering drug that hinders emotion, Preston, who has been trained to enforce strict laws of the new regime, suddenly becomes the one capable of overthrowing it. And that is the end of the good description. Not too bad other than the K in there and a whole lot of other missing plot points. But what do you guys think? It's fairly accurate. Yeah, I'd say it sums it up. Yeah, when they try and say too much is when they get themselves into trouble usually. This one was fairly short, sweet, to the point. Yeah, just, just laying out the basic setup, not necessarily the plot. But a little bit of plot, but yeah. Yeah, a little I bit. Think, I think the IMDB rating is a little bit more accurate, though. The Rotten Tomatoes, I'm not sure why it got so, so low on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, you oh, maybe maybe a whole bunch of people like me were reviewing it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, boy. All right, this is going to be a good one. There's going to be a, a lot of conflict here on this, on this episode, uh, which you can find at actualanarchy.com slash 40. Uh, one, one thing I want to point out is the budget was $20 million, and the box office was a paltry $5.3 million. Wow. So they lost yeah. their ass on this. Uh, not sure exactly why that is. Um, I mean, this is shortly after... 9-11, I know a lot of movies got scrapped uh, in, in uh, response to that, or they got altered um, or delayed. 
Uh, do, does anyone know the background story on that, on, on why this perhaps only got 5.3 million? I'm not sure how accurate that one is. I think I read something that said they can, it, it released internationally and they considered it a success. It made a, made a decent amount of money internationally, and so they didn't put a lot of effort in the U.S. to promoting it because they didn't want it to lose money. Mm, I don't know how much sense that makes, but... <laughs> And, uh, you know, in the pre-show, uh, Lewis, you and I were talking about how when this movie first came out and we watched it, we were like, oh, yeah, this is very clearly uh, an anti-GWB regime um, movie. But upon looking at the date of this thing, December 6, 2002 was the release date in, in the United States. Wasn't GWB still riding that um, sympathy wave of post-9-11, like, consolidation, collectivist, uh, patriotic nonsense? Wasn't his rating ratings, his approval ratings were like as high as they'd ever be at that point? Yeah, it seems like it. If I remember right, I remember all that huge wave of patriotism following 9/11, and um, so uh, of course this movie would have been in production before that happened. I would think. Um, so it could have just been a response to a Republican getting in office. I don't know. Yeah, because I know when I saw the movie, which is probably not in the theater, but a few, you know, a few months later when it was on DVD. People still have DVDs, right? I don't even know. We we use Voodoo. <laughs> we we promote Voodoo now. Um, so if you have DVDs, you can put them into the Voodoo. Um, but uh, when I saw this, I think at that point the the general consensus had turned sort of against George W. Bush. There was the Patriot Act, there was a, uh, the escalation of the war in Iraq and, and in Afghanistan and a bunch of other things going on. There was the uh, free speech zones uh, and, and all the rest. And so I, I felt like when I watched this film, and I was fairly left-leaning at the time, you know, 2003, 2004 maybe, uh, that it was a critique of a right-wing totalitarian style uh, government and and so that's how I viewed this the very first time I saw this movie, and upon viewing it again present day for this very episode, it had a completely different perspective uh, because the the roles have reversed, if you will, and now it's the left who can who wishes to control thought and uh, be totalitarian, and so I, I think that's interesting in that watching this movie now versus in the past, I think the movie is actually a better movie today than when it first came out. You guys Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was... Because when you mentioned that earlier um, in the discussion that uh, um, I can recall seeing this, it must have been maybe 2003 was the first time I saw it because our brother-in-law was really enthusiastic about it and and the the gunplay that they did in it and, and how they moved and the fighting style and and of course, I'm a big dystopian sci-fi fan, so so I wanted to see it. And and the first time I saw it, I I didn't. Uh, I just thought, oh, you know, it's it's a dystopian flick, and it's kind of cool. But but when we saw it a couple nights ago, it had a completely different meaning. Um, just uh, uh, you know, like you said, um, back then it could have it was more of a response of like. Uh, right-leaning government, but, but looking at it now today, you, you feel like it, it could easily work as a left, <laughs> like a leftist type government. So, so I think the, the movie is, is, to me, it's still really relevant, uh, absolutely relevant, even possibly more relevant than, than it was in those days. 
Well, it was interesting to me because the first time I saw it, which would have been probably right when it came out on video, was at the time when I was probably more apolitical. Like, I just didn't really pay much attention to politics or anything like that. And I didn't watch the movie from any kind of left-right lens perspective. And I remember thinking, wow, this, I mean, it's kind of crazy that wonder, you know, maybe something like that could happen. And then I haven't seen the movie since until we watched it a couple nights ago. So my political spectrum has changed dramatically. And watching it now, I still didn't necessarily pick up any specific left-right agenda on the part of the filmmakers. I was just looking at it as the totalitarian mindset, not necessarily one or the other. (laughs) Right, and and both sides are are really totalitarian when it comes down to it. And it was more interesting to me this time because it did seem really relevant. Well, like you were talking about, Julie, when uh, uh, looking into some of the symbology, I don't know if we want to get into that right yet, but uh, just how um, using the term cleric and then, of course, the tetra tetragrammaton, tetragrammaton that, that that is a uh, religious symbol. And uh, so, so there definitely is kind of some religious symbolism in the movie, which, which is why back in 2002, you know, may, maybe it could be geared as, is a hit against conservatism, but then you think about how the left also uses, um, you know, they they can elevate the state to godhood too, you know, godhood, you know, with a lowercase g or whatever, and uh, and that seems to work as well, you know, that that the state is God, and uh, you don't you don't really need to question their motives, and so so yeah yeah left or right, I think it I think it works. I agree that it. it it works left or right, but for me, I I'm, I'm dif- differing from uh, Lewis and Daniel here, in that um, I saw it very much as a left wing guy commenting on a right wing regime. In that the left is all about emotion and the power of emotion, and everything is spoken of in emotional terms, and they respond emotionally to every every argument you could ever make. And this movie was very much about losing humanity when you lose your emotions and emotion is the way to live and survive and all that kind of stuff. So for me, it was very much a left-wing commentary on a dystopian world where essentially the right-wing rules and operates through cold, hard logic. And it's only through the power of emotion that humans really truly experience humanity. Right. And that's how I viewed it the first time I saw it as well, because I was still left-leaning at the time. You know, Bush was, was the evil guy, right? Uh, so it must have been 2004, maybe when, when I saw saw this, because um, who'd Bush run against in 2004? It was Al Gore in 2000. John Kerry, maybe. Yeah, Kerry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of Kerry either. I think that was when my my disillusionment was sort of started really taking root. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I would agree, Robert. I, I would think that this was a pro left, pro emotional pro-humanity feeling versus the cold, hard, rational thinking of the so-called conservatives, right? The economic uh, coldness of of calculating what is, you know, the utilitarian reply to something. Right. Yeah, because that's a a, a slander that gets thrown at us all the time, is that we don't care about the poor, we don't care about children or any of that crap. When yeah, which we is really unfortunate. Of course, we <laughs> unfortunate because like we care to the point to where 
we understand that what they're advocating is actually an evil effect. It's a terrible thing what they're advocating for. The effects are, are, are not positive. They think they're helping. It sounds good, but it's similar to any bill that gets passed in Congress. It's the help help puppies law, and it's actually like euthanizing puppies. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, why don't we get into just a little bit of the plot from the Wikipedia article, and then we'll just start jumping through some notes, if that's okay with you folks. Let's do it. So it says here, and, and this is not made clear in the movie, but um, in the Wikipedia it says it's set in 2072. And uh, from my notes, and I'm not reading the, the Wikipedia just yet, um, but they say that, that the world has experienced World War III in the early part of the 21st century. And I think Walter Block would agree that uh, had Hillary won, we'd be one step closer to that, though uh, <laughs> Tr- Trump has kind of... <laughs> bore out that uh, it doesn't really matter who wins. Uh, yeah. We all, yeah. Of course, no. But uh, so it says in uh, 2072, Libya, a city-state established by the survivors of World War III, which devastated the world, where a totalitarian government requires all citizens to take daily injection, injections of prosium II to suppress emotion and encourage obedience. All emotionally stimulating material has been banned, and sense offenders, those who fail to take the prosium, are put to death as the government claims that this will cause wars and violence uh, due to emotion. Liberia is governed by the Tetragrammaton Council, led by the father, who is seen only on giant video screens throughout the city. At the pinnacle of Liberian law enforcement are the Grammaton clerics, who are trained in the martial art of gun kata. The clerics frequently raid the nether region outside the city to search for and destroy illegal materials, art, literature, and music, and execute the people hiding them. A resistance movement known as the Underground emerges with the goal of toppling Father and the Tetragrammaton Council. So that's just the first part here. It's not really getting into the scenes just yet, just kind of setting the table. And my initial comment is that I feel like this movie might be viewed, especially when it first came out, as a ripoff of The Matrix and 1984. Uh, So I'll open up the comments at this point, and then we can get into some of the scenes and notes. I can see that. Yeah, I could see that. Okay, so um, let's 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 unpack the main claim made by this movie, if we can. I want to get everybody's response to that. If you have thoughts, so the main claim is essentially that emotion causes war, and I think it has a little bit of a point to it. Um, when politicians use false flags, or you know, babies in incubators, or yellow cake, whatever, they lie to the people, but they also really prey on people's emotions, and a lot of popular support for a war is essentially an emotional thing. Um, it's a lot of like pride and you know loyalty and anger and that those sorts of emotions which really lend to the popular support for wars. So I'm wondering how how well that that claim rings true to you guys. If if you think they got something of a point, or do you think it's just a bunch of crap, or did it did it did it ring true to you guys? Anybody want to jump in? I think that in some respects that it does ring a little true. I mean, we obviously see it. We see that that is a tactic on almost everything is to appeal to our emotions. Yeah. And like you were talking about with the you know save puppies or it's for the children, you know it's the appeal to the emotions is usually a f- the first thing that they go for. Yeah. And so there is, there, there is something to that, that unrestrained and 
out-of-control emotions contribute to a lot of problems. Definitely agree with you. So, yeah, I think the movie does have a certain point to it. Um, I wouldn't say it's the ultimate. I think, you know, greed, like psychopathic greed, is, is, is the real driver for war, for these politicians to come in and gain as much resources as they can and then get out and make money for their buddies and then ensure their golden parachutes and get into the private sector when they get out and, you know, all the backslapping and whatever favors they do. But um, if it weren't for their ability to prey on the emotions of the people, uh, maybe uh, maybe they wouldn't be able to lie us into war all the time. I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting idea. Well, there's, there's a reason they do false flags, and that is to stir emotions, right? Remember yeah. the Maine, the Gulf of Tonkin, 9-11, you know, whatever. They use mm-hmm. it as a rallying cry against the other. Uh, it's, uh, we're, we've always been at war with uh, Ruritania or East Asia. Asia or whatever. Yeah, Ruritania yeah. is, uh, is uh, from Rothbard's uh, enemy, or Anatomy of the State, sorry. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's kind of the same thing. You know, you, as soon as you rally against a common enemy, then you, you, you collectivize the people. And this this was right. very apparent in our Thirteen Assassins movie, where is that is that what it was? Um, where they were rallying against the uh, Narasaku guy because he was so evil. Mm. I know I know we made yeah, this point. I mean, maybe in, maybe in Pulp Fiction where Butch and um, Marcellus were in the, the the dungeon with the with the gimp, and they they, they yeah. found an evil greater like, than what are you talking them. about? Well, they they found an evil greater than them wanting to kill each other that they then joined right. forces to fight. Yeah, yeah, that's a common tactic, is to create an external enemy that everybody can rally around and they drum up popular support for a war. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, and now I remember. In 13 Assassins, our point was that they didn't uh, come up with wars against ideas. So they hadn't yet figured out how to come oh, yeah. up with an enemy. And had they done that, then they would have been more successful in maintaining their government. Right, yeah, it's, it's a more advanced government that we have these days that are able to come up with wars against things that don't exist, which are never, never-ending wars you can never win, never lose. And you can just keep going and sucking off people forever. It's yeah, yeah. Fantastic. And, and another parallel with our last episode, which is, is actualanarchy.com 39, or slash 39 on Pulp Fiction, is that uh, the clerics, Christian Bale and Ned Stark uh, initially, and then Ty, Ty Diggs at, at, uh, later on, uh, there's some uh, authoritarians doing some, some authoritarian gangster shit. <laughs> Just like Jules and, <laughs> and Vincent Vega, you know? Yeah, so I have a question for you, Daniel, or anybody. Um, Christian Bale is the hero of this movie, and he starts out by doing some horrific stuff. Do we, like we did in Pulp Fiction, do we, do we still sympathize with him? Or did you see him as a victim of the propaganda and the drugging and the mind control, and then therefore he's the hero and he's good? And he, or did you just swear off him at the very beginning? Well, the first time I saw it, I expected him to go on the whole quote-unquote hero's journey, that there was going to be some kind of conflict with him internally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think the first time I watched it, I, I was sympathetic to him um, because I saw him as a product of the system. And then, of course, as the movie progressed, you see how he, he deals with that and, and he becomes more sympathetic as as the movie goes along. But uh, Right. So nobody, nobody swore off him at the very beginning? Like, screw this guy? Well, no, I was kind of just reserving judgment, I guess. I mean, the first really sympathetic character for me was his partner, Sean Bean's character, because mm-hmm. you could see something was going on there with him. So he was the first sympathetic character for me, as, even though I knew Christian Bale was the main character and 
was going to be the hero of the movie. Up until that yeah. point, it was just kind of like, all right, I'm going to reserve judgment until I see what happens. <laughs> right, but they have yeah, to establish how, how brainwashed he is, right? So he shoots yep. his own partner, and they talk about he was there. He was the one who turned his wife in, <laughs> you know? So yeah. how, how fully bought in to the, the system he is. And, yeah. and that is the start of his arc, this, his hero's journey, like you were saying, Lewis. The first yeah, thing he, you have to see is how... I mean, he just seems so cold-hearted is what you have to see at the beginning. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's even how it's shot, you know, like um, the movie, uh, anyone who's on the prosium is, is a very stark, uh, muted color, right? And, and then when they start experiencing emotion, you see color in their face. You see more of the reds and, and the, the, the pinks. Uh, they're, they're more uh, lively. Did you guys notice this as, as he was reducing his dosage? That oh, yeah. the color in his face would, would increase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, and the I'm, woman he falls for has got all kinds of color in her face, too, yeah. I was going to mention, too, just how it, it almost seems like they're robotic or mechanical when they're on the prosium. And so, so that's another thing that where you, you feel like you can sympathize a little bit because there's not a whole lot of emotion there that's, that's creating a response in you. I mean, you see him burn, order the paintings burned, the Mona Lisa and so forth, and you're, you're horrified by that, but you just, you look at, at his response as being so robotic that he could care less one way or the other, you know? It's, uh, but then as he progresses in the movie, you start to care more for him because he's caring more. So um, that's another thing that I think is, is kind of interesting about about the whole whole progression of his character. But Yeah, and it takes you on the journey because he does struggle against it. I mean, he almost re-injects himself several times because he's like having withdrawals or experiencing emotion for the first time and it's uncomfortable and so he's tempted to go back to um, taking the blue pill, right? Yeah. To, to steal more from the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, this this is like small doses of uh, suppressing the, the humanity and I, I saw them injecting this stuff and I almost thought you know, they're doing this with a, a gun-like uh, apparatus, and, and it's almost like they're pointing a gun to themselves, their own heads, and killing their own humanity, committing suicide by incremental doses, and, yeah, and then that's, just that's, marking time, right, until until they get old and die. Yeah, that seemed very intentional on the part of the filmmaker to make it look kind of like they're shooting themselves. For sure. And that they were doing it willingly. I mean, I suppose if you consider them brainwashed, I don't know how willing it was, but I mean, the the state wasn't coming into their homes and injecting them. They were all doing it themselves. Well, because they had bought into the the system. I mean, the the state had kind of proposed why they needed to do this, and you know, they used fear tactics to 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 make people want to to obey the system. I mean, which is honestly, ironic since yeah. fear is an emotion. <laughs> well, perhaps. I mean, initially, maybe that's how they got people to do it was that, hey, if we don't do this, we're going to have another war and it's going to wipe everyone out. Well, and if you don't do it, they're going to kill you, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, and it's almost a utilitarian, if, if not an emotional response, right? It's just sort of both, plays both, uh, both cards there. Uh, but do you guys think, I'm going to shift topics just a little bit, but that the Prosium is so similarly named to Prozac and other uh, mental Valium, health type I drugs, think. yeah, yes, mood altering, and yeah. the mix of the two. That this is sort of a commentary on the drug culture, the pharmaceutical industrial complex, if you will, because uh, that was kind of on the radar back when this was uh, coming out. 
so you're sort of creating this Borg-like automaton, uh, automated system of, of humanity collectivizing them together. Uh, do you guys have any comment on that? I would say yes. I mean, America, I don't know if this is still true, but at least once upon a time, we were the most medicated, if not still true, um, people on the planet. And very much so. Uh, we medicate and over-medicate our children, get them on Ritalin and other things. I mean, I know it's not so much in the news these days, but it's still a thing. Um, I did see in the news yesterday that um, they're finding all kinds of hormones, added hormones in the Great Lakes fish. I know we've talked in the past about added hormones in the fish in like the East River and some of the lakes around London, but now it's even in the Great Lakes. So yeah, and these, these things trickle down and they get into the fish from us. So yeah, we're absolutely, uh, I think it's a commentary by him, uh, an intentional commentary for sure. Yeah, I think it probably was intentional to some part. I know that um, something I read, I think, that initially they wanted to call the drug Librium because of the name of the city, only to find out that that name was already taken for a real anti-anxiety drug. <laughs> a little too close to home, huh? A little too close to home. <laughs> and it is, it is interesting because the name of the, the city-state is Libria. And, of course, that's a takeoff of liberty. And, and so they're, they're, of course, propagandizing the people that, oh, you're free. And, and they have constant 1984-style Big Brother messaging over the PA system, over giant screens, telling them the, the glorious history and, and how they're triumphant and they've overcome all these uh, evils of human nature and, and everyone just walks uh, consistently at the same speed together as a, as a whole, as a mass. And, and like I mentioned earlier, like a Borg-like structure. And it is uh, contrasted later as it becomes more and more emotional or sensing where he's breaking through that and, and running and, and uh, bumping into people and, and, and trying to get to uh, his goals and try to accomplish them. I don't mean to jump the gun here, but I, I just think that's kind of an interesting thing to point out, uh, even though we're very early in this episode. Yes, it's one of the first things that you notice when you get to that part of, of the first introducing us to the city is you notice the drab, dull you know, colors everybody's wearing. You know, the clothes are all basically the same, their hairstyles. You know, the it seems pretty clear that the goal of that society, I guess, was to eliminate, you know, any differences, make everybody identical. Right, which is, of course, the goal of the equalitarian, egalitarian types, right? They sort yeah. of deny human nature and human difference and human preference. Like, Michael Jordan was taller than a lot of people and more skilled than other people. Like, I couldn't go and play for a basketball team. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I think there was one time that they mentioned the collective destiny um, in one of their propaganda videos, I wrote yeah, they actually here. they actually just came right out and said it at some point in the movie. Yeah, yeah. So so it did seem like they were talking about collectivism and you know everyone's just a worker bee, and the whole the whole system is engineered to create worker bees in order to yeah yeah. To, one of those lines was yeah we we're allowing people to live identical lives, which is clearly not the case. Shrug yeah. off individuality and replace it with conformity. That was what they said. Yeah, there you go. I had that written down too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so I, I want to back us up just a little bit. I know we haven't really talked a whole lot about scenes specifically, but I do want us to talk to the Orwellian language like we were alluding to earlier, you know, the, the save puppies law and it's actually exterminating puppies. Um, so 
There's a line where he says, uh, you know, you're going to be turned in and sent in for processing. He says this to his partner who's reading mm-hmm. Gates. And he says, well, we both know they never go easy. And Bale's response is, well, there's no murder, so it's worth it. And Sean Bean, uh, Ned Stark, slash Boromir says, <laughs> have you seen what we do? And it, it's interesting because in their job as being the Tetragrammaton, they don't see what they do as murder, but it is murder. They're, they're killing human beings. They're killing people, but they don't view it that way because of a perversion of the language. And only later on uh, is it made like abundantly clear when Bale is um, releasing that puppy, and I know I'm jumping ahead, <laughs> but uh, then this, this tactical team descends upon him, and he, he defends himself, kills them all. Uh, so it's like, you know, the enforcers are, are upon him and, and threatening his life, and he kills himself in self-defense, or kill, kills them in self-defense, sorry. Uh, and, and then they say, um, did you hear about the murders last night? Because all these enforcers got killed, right? So it's like totally mm-hmm. different if, if you're in the enforcer group or if you're just a normal, you know, average automaton, Borg-like uh, citizen. Right. So, the, Which, yeah, the government claims that murder is only a crime of passion because you eliminate emotion and you get rid of murder. But what that, all that does is opens the door wide open for utilitarian murder, like as is depicted in the movie, like you're saying. Well, and like, government agents, movie. and like government agents are the only people capable of being murdered. Yeah. The government agents do tons of killing, but none of that is murder. Right, because it's, it's all legal. Legal yeah. murder. <laughs> well, it's a case of the rights coming from the state. I mean... Um, when you have a society like that where everyone believes that the only rights you have are the ones that come from the state, then it's, I think it's easy to have a system like this where the state is defining what is and what isn't, or, you know, the power, whoever's in power, if it's, uh, they're the ones who define what's right and wrong. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I think they also inculcate the population in um, spying on each other which is reminiscent of the uh, Sesame Credit system in China, which is like a social network that rates you as an individual. You score points for buying Made in China or towing the party line or being quote-unquote patriotic, and your network of friends will impact your score. So if you have some dissidents in your circle, you're encouraged or incentivized to disassociate from them. And it's sort of a self-policing thing, so it, it shifts the burden from the government being the totalitarians and expending it at great cost, right? Because budgets are tight, right? They say this even in the movie. <laughs> like, funds are tight, but we're still out here doing our job um, to shift that responsibility to the population through propaganda and so that they police each other. And even the kid uh, says, I saw Robbie, uh, what's his name, Robbie Taylor crying. Should I report him? And the dad says, yes. Yeah, I noticed that too. It almost seemed like children especially were encouraged to be pointing the finger at people because you actually saw in a scene where there was a child who was pointing at someone that was walking by and you kind of got the sense that like maybe that child was pointing someone out for the authorities to go grab yeah yeah yeah, and that kid, yeah he was a sensing kid or, or whatever so he was a tool mm-hmm. that the state was using to identify potential dissidents like with thought crime with, with sense crime or feeling like right. 10 violations and it's totally arbitrary and, and arbitrariness becomes very important a little bit later on, and we'll get to that. But uh, my, my um, I'll just be out with it. My big character arc, or my big reveal in this movie, was Christian Bale's kid. Yeah. Initially, 
he appears to be even more removed from emotion and humanity because his whole life he's never experienced it. That kid at the very beginning was like about the creepiest kid I think I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, he says, you will go to equilibrium, you will log the loss, you will get a replacement. He was very disturbing, you know, the way he was bossing his dad around. And then they didn't call him, they didn't use terms like mom and dad. He called him by his name. Ah, right. uh, but, but later on he does but call him. But later on, yeah. And that was kind of a big reveal, I think, when he did that. Yeah, it was like tipping the hand a little. Uh-huh. So what do you guys think, though, as far as why the movie has kids in that kind of role? What, what kind of statement do, do we think they're making by having kids in that role? I must think it was Children of the Corn style Damien, uh, <laughs> you know, because cause they're they, it, and in The Shining, you know, they got the two twin girls and they're like, come play with us forever, forever. Uh, it's it's almost creepier because you know that the kid has never experienced something else, and and so they're fully bought into this system. They've been raised in it, they've been indoctrinated into it. They're, they're in the government school program, and so it's almost more dangerous because they don't have the uh, alternative experience ever that they can then um, resort to or potentially feel again. So I think it makes it makes it even more dangerous because they're almost automaton, uh, like computerized. You know, it, it's almost um, there's no uh, chance of turning them. Yeah. Which is why it becomes all that more of a reveal when the kid finally does say, oh yeah, I haven't been taking this shit since, since mom died. <laughs> and by the way, you murdered her, but whatever. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I kind of felt like that, too, that they were trying to make some kind of a statement about um, the state using kids in that fashion, like, because they didn't they didn't have the capability or the experiences like what you said, um, as, as they were older and more mature, uh, you, you do draw from more experiences throughout life, and as you're a child, you're still developing and maybe a little more susceptible to that indoctrination and... and uh, just just doing whatever you're told and and not really feeling one way or another about calling out other people and to be yeah, it's, sent it's off in, for processing. It's interesting showing kids in a movie doing the same thing that adults are doing. Because um, when I was watching that movie, you're watching the adults kind of behave messed up, but adults me- behave messed up all the time in movies and in real life. You see them behaving authority or behave, you know, obeying authority and saying stupid stuff. But then when you see a kid doing the exact same thing, it seems to heighten it, and you're like, whoa, whoa, that's really messed up if even a kid is doing, saying this messed up stuff. Because you almost give up, you know, the humans, the adults, it's like, well, they should know better. But when a kid's doing it, yeah, I think it, uh, it heightens and uh, puts a magnifying glass on it. And it even shows, like, a jaded adult that maybe uh, things are not, not right. It's funny how it is, it is like that with kids because sometimes as as parents, like we might say something and not think twice about it. But then if we hear our kids say that exact same thing, we're like, whoa, <laughs> coming yeah, out of their where mouth. where did you hear that? <laughs> that right. doesn't sound good. I mean, it kind of sounds bratty or disrespectful or something. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. I have an example of that. <laughs> um, my kids were watching Care Bears maybe a year ago now. So when they were three and one and the three-year-old says, fucking Care Bears. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I thought that was funny. Uh, so I, I want to just throw a couple of things out, and, and they're going to seem a little bit disjointed, but um, yeah, they're, they're, you know, whatever, they're fun. So when they first break into the house, uh, Bale defends himself. He defends his family, right? It's kind of a, a, a 
a recall or a recollection of when his wife got arrested for a sense crime. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and he stops fighting them when they say, this is a lawful entry. She has been accused of a sense crime, whatever. And later on, he says, we're the grammaton or whatever. Uh, there's nothing we cannot do. And right. I thought that was kind of interesting because it's the full-on police state. There's no civil rights. There's no bill of rights. There's no protections of the individual or the citizen. It's just whatever the fuck they want to do, they can do. But later on, when Bale is talking to... Um, is he talking to the father or is it the, the creepy dude who reveal is the father? Um, later on when he's um, saying, I, I, I'm here to serve you know, samurai style. Like my life is to give to uh, the father. Um, but this is against the laws or the rules that you guys have set forth. And the response is the father's will is the law. Yeah. And so then it becomes totally arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I know that's all that laws too. are, right? I noticed that too because I wasn't really clear on how their government was supposed to function because he did make some kind of reference to laws and he was questioning their actions. Like, well, the stuff that we're doing now isn't legal. And then that's when he was like, well, whatever father says is legal. You know, is basically what it boiled down to. Right. And the alleged logic and order that was in that society was in reality chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is what they claimed to want to eradicate, and they said that he had to believe in the faith of of you know father, and it became almost religion, and 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 that goes a straight line to most atheists still believe in a form of religion. They just it just happens to be called government. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, in a, in this movie, the religious nature of the government wasn't even subtle. <laughs> you know, it was it was pretty obvious that. Yeah, you got clear. I mean, it was kind of, it was kind of putting cross-like, and yeah. Yeah, well, and and you know, the tetragrammaton, of course, was the name of God in the Old Testament. That's just what it is. It's the name of God. And then the leader of their government was Father, and then the clerics or the police. And it's not even subtle that in this world, the government is God, and so whatever they say goes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, did you guys happen to listen to our most? Um, well, not quite most recent episode, but the one on 13 Assassins. No, I don't think I heard that one. Okay, well, that, that's our uh, episode 38. And, and essentially, this is very similar in that the clerics live to serve, and that's sort of what the, the samurai did in the movie 13 Assassins. And I'm not trying to talk about the culture in Japan because I'm no expert, and we, we made that abundantly clear in the episode. But within the confines of that movie, their goal in life was to serve their masters, serve their lords. And... That that right 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 or wrong not not yeah right or wrong unquestionably unquestionable devotion uh, which also ties back to Charlie Prince and uh, Ben Wade character in episode thirty seven three ten to human it feels like we're doing the same movie over and over and over again (laughs) there are repeating themes yeah it's fucking Groundhog Day man (laughs) which we should do I love Bill Murray but um, uh, they do make mention in this movie uh, Ty Diggs tells Christian Bale. Uh, the days of clerics are coming to an end. Like our our mission of destroying all art, all music, all culture, all decorative, all emotion eliciting things are coming to an end because eventually we're going to destroy everything. And I liken that to what was happening in Thirteen Assassins, where they were viewing the days of the samurai coming to an end. Uh, so yeah. I guess this is directed more towards Robert because you guys don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. But <laughs> Robert, your comment, and then we'll move back to something that uh, our uh, libertarian uh, cartoon press people can chime in on. <laughs> 
No, you're absolutely right. I didn't, I didn't even think about that. It's nice that you're drawing parallels between all the different movies we do. Um, yeah, so there's a little bit of difference because, right, I mean, obviously the main huge differences, but, yeah, the, the days of the samurai were going away because um, the Tokugawa, I believe it's Tokugawa, don't quote me, sorry if it isn't, but he united all of Japan, so therefore, you know, samurai were warriors, and they were the warrior class, and right, if you didn't have a war to fight, you didn't have anything to do. commercial break, easy E commercial break. Don't quote me, boy, I ain't said shit. All right, continue. Okay, so, yeah, they were a warrior class. Uh, and yeah, as soon as the war is gone and you have relative peace, what do you do with yourself? And they turned to writing poetry and writing books and basically being thugs to people that saw them as like God characters, or at least had to treat them that way. And in this movie, yeah, once they, they think, it's, it's a weird claim to make that, that once they destroy everything, it's almost the, um, well, the Bush idea that you could kill all the terrorists, that you won't create more resistance by destroying things, that you could punch the hate out of a Nazi. I mean, you just, that's not how it works. The, 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 it's, it's like Princess Leia in Star Wars. You know, the harder you squeeze, the more systems will slip through your fingers. Yeah. Uh, it, it breeds resistance when you act like this violent thug. People inherently, even though they're taking this drug, they have a feeling of the injustice of it all, and they will resist. Well, and the character that was asking that, or mentioning that, the Tay Diggs, he seemed like it just, in his mind, it just went without question that they would yeah. succeed in their mission and they would eventually destroy everything. And then he was wondering what place in the world would there be for people like them. And right. it was kind of, it was kind of, I don't know, like he just, he believed that they would succeed and that's all there was to it. It was very right. much a central planning type mindset. Very yeah. engineering <laughs> approach. Yeah, it's a very uh, short-sighted, like as if you destroy, even if you were to destroy this one resistance, it's just led by this one guy and there's a couple people or whatever, a couple hundred, a couple thousand, doesn't matter. There will be another one. I mean, in, unless you plan on just killing everybody on the planet. I, yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, unless they go the other route, which is to ensure and force every single individual to take the drug. That way there's no, there's no way that anybody accidentally stops taking it or purposefully or anything like that. No, that's, that's the only other route they had. Yeah, they you could go Matrix, Matrix style and put everybody in pods and then plug <laughs> them all into a computer. And then, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so it's another ripoff of the Matrix, only they're not in pods. They're out walking around real slow. <laughs> That's right. Or doing Gung Fu. Yeah, Gung Fu, which I thought was actually really cool, except for the um, initial exposition of it. He's literally standing in place, just moving his arms around, shooting people. Uh -huh. I don't see how he's avoiding being shot. It doesn't make sense. Well, they tried to explain it, that there was some kind of scientific process where they could determine trajectories and and just by practicing those moves that they would maximize their range while minimizing the chance that they would get hit by anything. And I don't... Yeah, they made it, they made it seem like the clerics are doing like some really high-level calculations in their head yeah. and, and doing <laughs> yeah, some really serious stuff. It, it seemed to me more like an idea not quite fully realized. It was a cool idea, but it seemed like they had budget constraints. And, well, you know, I, I think something I read... I think something I read said that this gun kata that the director, was it the director invented, um, that it wasn't really done the way he imagined it in this movie, but in mm -hmm. Ultraviolet, I think, you can see it in all of the glory he imagined it. Okay, interesting. interesting. <laughs> I've not seen well, it. I, I, I do want to say that the final fight between Bale and Father, I thought was pretty cool with their gun cut. Like, they kept trying to... Oh, yeah. Kind of like kung really? fu type blocking. I thought it was bullshit. Kind of I thought it was total <laughs> bullshit, because how is the father any good at this? 
He's a he's the highest level cleric. He's the boss of Bale the whole movie. Right, yeah, but Bale, he had to. But he, but he's a bureaucrat. <laughs> but he but he probably rose up from once being Bale or Bale a Bale character. All right, I might grant you that. I think right, you were right. supposed to understand that he used to be one. All right, so I have I have one question that's economic related, and then I'm going to set set the ball on the tee for the Libertopia WordPress folks. Uh, so when he's talked talked about getting his redose of prosium because his first one got knocked down on the ground, uh, Ty Diggs asked him, "How are the lines?" Because of course it's a bureaucratic distribution method. Of course there's lines. It's Venezuela. <laughs> there's bread lines, right? That's right. The drug lines. Uh, and now here I here I'm going to set it up for you guys. Unless you want to jump on that for a moment. All right. Well, then I'm setting you up. Uh, they mentioned the word Confederates to talk about their friend or friends who have been hoarding all of this art and music in its era, and I, I felt that that was an interesting word to use, especially in light of present-day use of Confederates and conflating with Nazis, and there's Nazi symbolism in the film that also happens to borrow, uh, or Trump borrowed the T flag for his campaign, so that's like right in the, the meatball zone for you guys, because I know you, you have some... <laughs> You know, this Confederate statue uh, uh, action yeah. going on, and there's everyone's being called a Nazi, and there's all this uh, conflation going on with libertarianism, anarchism, and white supremacy, and a bunch of bullshit. Uh, so I'm just going to give you guys the floor for a few minutes. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know if Julie has anything that she wants to say about it, but the thing that really hit me about this movie was just the topic of censorship, um, which I felt like... Uh, today was extremely relevant um, because me personally, I, I feel like we're kind of living in perhaps uh, one of the most dangerous times in regards to censorship on a massive scale. Uh, you know, I know there's been efforts in the past uh, to censor out all kinds of things, but here in America, it seems like uh, we're just we're in a time where where there's massive censorship on a wide scale. And it's not just necessarily the the Confederate monuments. Uh, it's it's like people at work who say the wrong thing. Um, they're out of a job, or you know, people track them down because they say something on a podcast, and or they say something on social media, and they tell their employer, and their employer fires them because they feel like they're they're compromised. Um, you know, so it just it uh, uh, there are things of an artwork artistic nature that I think are, are censored out of out of public view. Uh, so, so yeah, I thought the, the theme of censorship in, in the movie was a powerful one uh, for, for today's audience especially. But uh, I don't know exactly where I'm going with that. But, but uh, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, you talked about, about the, the whole Confederate monument issue, which, which I have talked about on Libertopia, uh, just kind of from a censorship perspective and, and also from a historical perspective because I think there is a lot of misunderstanding about history um, and, and especially about that time period in history and uh, I do understand the sensitivity towards um, a lot of the subjects kind of revolving around that and uh, I, I think racism is terrible and I think slavery is, is a terrible thing as well but uh, you know I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about why people fought in the so-called civil war, which wasn't civil at all, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know there was—I believe that there were many, many people that that were fighting because the state was aggressing horribly against them, and uh, they they had no other option but but to resist. 
and uh, so so I look at a lot of these efforts to to take down the statues or the monuments as, as artistic censorship and also just uh, kind of cultural censorship. And uh, you know, I think that there are some statues that that um, you know that uh, I, I I would prefer to see come down, but I don't know if I would argue that they should, just because I think from an educational standpoint, it's important for people to talk about it and. Uh, you know, of course, Julie and I got into the whole discussion about if the state believes that they own something, like in this movie. I'm, I'm sure the state makes the case that they own all this artwork, so they have the prerogative to destroy it. And uh, you know, w we see uh, some of these issues where, where if they believe that they own it, you know, do they have the right to cart it off and 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 uh, destroy it? Uh, that that's probably something that would be interesting to talk about. But uh, so. So that's that's me rambling about it. <laughs> no, that's interesting. Um, I do think that uh, the monuments themselves are used to reinforce the narratives that are propagated in the government schools, right? Because the history is written by the victors. So even even if the Confederate statues still stand, they're going to be villainized and demonized, right? Mm -hmm. It's always going to yeah. be used as a lesson against uh, uh, secessionist nature, Confederacy, the... Um, canard of slavery i mean of course it was a it was an element but it certainly wasn't the key driver in the uh war of northern aggression as i like to call it oh yeah because yeah. anyone who joins a voluntary union should be able to then leave a voluntary union if they wish yep. and uh, of course that is lost on anyone who is quote-unquote well-read in history <laughs> oh yeah or, yeah or for sure. education system yeah, well, nobody, that's essentially the definition of slavery. If you can't leave a contract. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and nobody actually reads the statutes themselves either to find out why they were erected in the first place. You're not going to go to one of these monuments and it's going to say this monument was erected in memory of all the people who fought to conserve slavery. That's not what they say. Right. <laughs> they say, right. you know, this was erected in memory of, you know, the husbands and fathers and sons and everybody who fought and died to protect their communities. Right, yeah, and they were defending their homes and their lives. You know, I mean, Sherman's March to the Sea was a, a swath of total, total destruction. Um, I don't know how, how many miles wide and how many miles long, but, I mean, nothing in its path was spared. I mean, that's not war. That's war crime. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And that affected everybody in those communities, not just white people. You know, everybody suffered under those tactics. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and as someone who's who's uh, very well read on history, I mean, I've I've spent a lot of time reading local history and and uh, uh, about that time about that time period, and of course American history, you know, from the the Revolutionary period and World War II history, because I do enjoy that subject. Um, but uh, I I consider myself as someone who's who's fairly knowledgeable about it. You know, there's always more to learn. But yeah, cite your uh, source, Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I could give you some. I'm uh, sitting right I in front of a whole bookcase of sources. Yeah, 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 I won't believe him anyway. I'll just have another copy. Lorenzo, I know, writes a great book on uh, uh, the real Lincoln. That's that's an excellent resource. Um, of course, Tom Woods, he's written some great resources on it. Uh, you know, the politically incorrect guide to American history is one. And uh, there's a, a book that's edited by Dwyer um, called America's Uncivil War. It's more of a textbook. And uh, I think that it's it's really an excellent presentation of of kind of the complexities surrounding that whole 
whole era. But, but like I said earlier, I mean, I think it's important to understand that, but the real issue at heart here is censorship and just, uh, you know, it's not just the whole Confederate statue debate. You know, there's, there's other things where people are, are criticizing, like at Google, you know, they, they criticize... Uh, or they, I wouldn't even necessarily say they criticize it. They just raise an alternative viewpoint, and they get they get canned from their job. You know, uh, it seems like there's a lot of things like that that are going on. And uh, within social media, you know, Facebook and Twitter, there there's been accusations of censoring uh, different viewpoints that that maybe Facebook or Twitter doesn't doesn't like. And uh, so. So you know, I think that that is a real concern for a lot of libertarian and voluntarists to 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 think about and maybe speak out a little bit more on. Um, it is a hard topic, especially when you're talking about the Confederate soldier debate. But uh, you know, when you get to the heart of of it being a censorship issue, I think it is something that is is very concerning. Well, I think that's where some of the um, kind of Ray Bradbury Fahrenheit 451 elements come into the movie because obviously that book was all about censorship and it also had the story arc with the main character who used to you know burn everything then turning and changing his mind and Bradbury has a quote that was pretty interesting in discussing other people's reaction to his work even in his time that people were like whining about how he depicts women or you know stupid things like that and he said there's more than one way to burn a book and the world is full of people running around with lit matches oh, I like that that's a great quote I'm going to add and, that to our quotes database at actuallyanarchy.com slash quote <laughs> should and I think that's very relevant both to the movie and to real life and that even in Bradbury's time with his own work, like a book about censorship, <laughs> he was having issues with people censoring his book. And, you know, so it's not just now, it's been going on for a long time. What do they call that, meta-irony? <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a special word for it, I know that. Oh, bullshit was my first word, but <laughs> meta-irony is pretty good. <laughs> well, and getting back to the movie, I think that that's one thing that the movie really accomplishes well, is just showing... Um, the horrific nature of censorship. You know, they, they're going around burning all these things that the state has determined um, creates improper feelings. You know, I think at one point they even say like hate crimes that they've, that many of these things that, that the state doesn't like is because it, it's caused people to commit hate crimes. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I wrote down here. It's it, there was a part where they said there's a disease in the heart of man. Its symptom is hate. Its symptom is rage. Its symptom is war. The disease is human emotion, and there's a cure. And then that's when they do like the prosium. Uh, it's right. like a little commercial propaganda commercial for prosium. <laughs> Their goal with that is but, is to create the new socialist man, right? Through yeah. this drug concoction, so that everyone is compliant and same and egalitarian. Yeah, which exactly. Was, which was just like clear cut, not even subtle, that that was their agenda in that society was to make everyone the same, completely the same. And they actually said like everyone is living the same life. Right, and I thought, sameness replaced individuality with conformity. Yeah, and I thought, life. wow, that's really that's really weird. <laughs> to, like we're trying yeah, to make everyone live the same life. That's Pol Pot communism, man. He 
killed all the intellectuals and threw everybody out into the back to the to the land and had like educators and like scientists or if they survived the purge to out like hoe in the fields and like everybody died and starved and stuff. Yeah, but you'd be killed if you had glasses because that that meant that you read. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. But that's what I'm saying. Like, if you know, when it's a when every, when everybody's the same, it's it's a race to the bottom. I mean, it's the lowest yeah. common denominator. You can't have exceptions because if, if if there's someone that's like nine feet tall or ten feet tall, well, you can't make everybody else taller. So you got to kill him. Yeah. Because everybody can't be that. Or well, the people at, at the top are the exception, though. Right. The always, yeah. There's always exceptions. Yeah. The Politburo. <laughs> well, and we saw that in this movie too, where where. Uh, the the individual eventually exposed his father. You you get to his office, and he's got this beautiful architecture and artwork hanging on the walls, and you know it's obvious that that he's the exception. You know. Yeah, it's like MTV uh, Cribs, like in the uh, Chappelle show. Yeah. He's like, "Welcome to my crib, you broke motherfuckers." <laughs> well, and he seems to experience some emotion too. And oh, he did. Was, he came right out and said he did. So, yeah, yeah, so let's let's put that ball on the tee ball for Robert here because uh, earlier on, maybe in the pre-show, he said that he had all sorts of contradictions to to outlay because that is exactly correct. He he, dis- he displayed emotion instead of the Ty Diggs guy because he was glad that it yeah. happened that the underground had explode and or exposed. And isn't that not an emotion? So Robert, I, I'm gonna I hand this to you, man. After Julie. No, I noticed that too, and I wasn't sure as I was watching it if we were supposed to understand that Tay Diggs' character was experiencing emotion because he did use lots of feeling words and he would smile a lot and sometimes seem like he was frustrated or angry. And I wasn't sure if we were supposed to understand he was feeling emotions or if I was just supposed to think that he wasn't a very good actor and that he didn't know yeah. how to not experience emotion. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's a, there's a fair amount of that. Like, the director's vision wasn't quite fully realized in this movie, but that's all we have to go on. So... Um, it, we have been singing the praise of this movie, and I do want to say that it does all the things that we've mentioned really well, and I do recommend it for those reasons. So now let me shit on it. Um, <laughs> there, there, there's a whole ton of inconsistencies. Now, they, they kind of explain it a little bit, like you mentioned, when they say the word um, vestigial, uh-huh. they say that some of these words that they use are vestigial words. They don't even know what they mean anymore, but they're leftover remnants from back when humans did feel things. But... And I understand that totalitarianism is a work in progress, so maybe they're still getting to these things. But they destroy art, music, books, because it makes people feel things. But they leave symbols, which people associate with feelings. They allow human interaction, like with families. People tend to feel things toward their children or become attached to them some ways. They give inspirational speeches. Now, that's the biggest thing for me is that they've got this guy giving these inspirational speeches and people are standing up and clapping. They're only standing up and clapping because they feel something. They're responding to something. They're feeling pride. They're feeling uh, loyalty. They're feeling, you know, patriotism. They're feeling something. They're responding something to the speech from this father guy, thanks, gratitude, what have you. So it seemed to, for me, every time that would happen, I would just go, well, that's completely inconsistent. Why? It's not, I understand you have to have a plot and you're dealing with human actors and you still have to use humans. But every time there would be some kind of emotion where, like you said, the agent would feel satisfaction or joy, or it, they would use language like, I'm pleased about this event. It just struck me as, well, he wouldn't say that. Why would he say that? that, that that's exposing himself to, his, to people that would kill him if they recognized that as an emotion. So every time it happened, I was, it was immediately taken out of the movie, and it bothered me. So, I mean, they're having 
inspirational speeches, which are, you know, by their very nature, inspirational. They're trying to inspire people, which is, you know, an emotion sort of. Um, they conduct violent assaults all the time. That's emotional. Which tend to <laughs> upset people. It's, I mean, it, it's, 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 it's a, you tend to react emotionally to violence, either if you're perpetrating it or if you're receiving it. Um, it seems well, like you would just cut though. off all human interaction altogether. But that was the, the point of the drug, right? To desensitize them emotionally, to neuter them. Yeah, because once he stopped yeah. taking the drug, he started becoming much, much more sensitized to the violence. Right, but it seems like you wouldn't... I mean, what's the point of giving an inspirational speech to a bunch of people that can't feel anything? I'll yeah, that, that's something I noticed, too. And I was uh, wondering if that was like... Are we just supposed to understand that this is just kind of like a robotic response? That they know that they're supposed to stand up and clap here? <laughs> or like... Or if that was just an inconsistency, I wasn't really sure. Yeah, I, I think it really was that, that they knew they couldn't eradicate human emotion, but they could play to the base emotions, you know, the fear, the patriotism, etc. And so they would have a quote-unquote three-by-five index card of acceptable emotion that they would then cater to and uh, propagandize toward with those speeches and whatnot. But anything outside of that was a no-no. So you're saying that they're... There's allowable emotion, and then there's non-allowable emotion. So it's okay when they exploit emotion, but when you feel that emotion that they're trying to exploit, then you're vulnerable to being murdered? Yeah, because I think that's the only way to really control people, right? You have to have them fear. You have to have them feel like what they're doing is the right thing or uh, that they are triumphant, they are obeying Father. They are, I mean, even the clerics are like, we live to serve the Father. I'm his instrument. Uh, I mean, that's an emotional... Base, basis, right, at its core, uh, but they're blunting all of the, I guess, more nuanced and expanded emotions, you know, so they're going to the base emotions, the, the Maslow, you know, the, the basic needs, and not the actualization, not the love, not the social relationship and connections, but the collectivization and the fear and the, because um, yeah, you knew if you exhibited any emotion, you'd be murdered, right, or you knew if you harbored any... But they did. But when they stood up and clapped, that's exhibiting an emotion. When they said that I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased, that's right, an emotion. But that, that's, that's a government-sanctioned and approved emotion. That's like the Sesame Credit in China. You know, they, they <laughs> but but the government never said that. They never said, here's the list of acceptable emotions, here's the list that aren't. But they do implicitly by giving such speeches, and it becomes the accepted behavior to do this clapping, right? Well, I wonder, if they, I wonder if they just consider, I mean, like, would you say approval is an emotion or clapping is just supposed to represent, well, I approve of what they're saying. Well, and there also is, like you were saying, Robert, the vestigial words, and Julie, I think you were alluding to it, like they would go through the motions of yeah. what used to have some symbolic meaning. Well, like when Preston, lost the meaning. like when Preston, you know, murdered his partner and he said, I'm sorry. And he was like, no, you're not. That's just a vestigial word. You don't even know what that means. Right. It's like when they say good morning. Uh, later yeah. on in the film, he says, good morning. How are, you know, and it, it doesn't mean anything anymore. It's almost like the Pavlovian uh, response. Yeah. Well, I was, I was going to jump in and say, like, uh, in 1984, you've got where they're always working to find words to replace. And, you know, in, in their system, they've never reached the ultimate pinnacle of of what they're trying to achieve. I mean, because the main character in 1984 is always always busy um, finding things to throw down the memory hole and and uh, new words to replace and 
um, new offenses against the state and that kind of thing. So maybe that's similar to what, what they're trying to, to portray in this movie. But I was also going to contrast like Brave New World um, because in Brave New World, they have no family unit. It's like all the kids are just raised by the state. And so maybe in Equilibrium, uh, like Julie was saying, they are kind of sanctioning certain things uh, that you can have a family and a family relationship as long as it's within the constraints of what is state approved. You know, so yeah. Did and you I noticed that even when he was laying in the bed and then he went through his like uh, first sensation of emotion, that they then panned over and he looked over at the empty bed that was where his wife used to sleep, but it was a separate bed. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think I noticed that it was a separate bed. I was wondering how you know how does this work when you've got no feelings? How do you you know, how do you pick your partner? <laughs> is it like the government picks them for you? Or, you know, I right. was wondering, you how does marriage like you, work? You yeah, know, do you go on dates? <laughs> you know, what is this? It's just like you're assigned to each other, and so this is what you're going to do, and then whatever kids you have, you know, those are your kids. And it, it didn't even really seem like there was necessarily a parent-child relationship. It was just like you're their guardians or something, or you're just kind of responsible for making sure that they get sent to whatever propaganda facility, <laughs> you know, because it didn't seem like children and adults even had distinct roles. They were the same, you know, yeah, based, on, based on the way the kid was acting, where he was really kind of bossy, bossing his dad around. Yeah, which made him scarier. It did. <laughs> My kids started bossing me around. I'm like, no, that's not how this works. <laughs> <laughs> and it did seem like uh, Christian Bale's character, once he started feeling emotions... It did seem like he was almost afraid of his son because his son was really like the creepazoid, I'm going to turn you in. You kind of got that impression from him. Yeah, and that's why the reveal at the end when they come to inspect the apartment uh, and the kid reveals, there's too many reveals, but he shows him uh, the father that, or Christian Bale, his father, not the father, duh, uh, <laughs> that I've hidden these from the inspectors or from the, the people searching the place. So I'm actually on your side. Yeah, and then you find out that he and his sister both had been off the drug for like four years. He, they said since mom. Right. So that was, a, that was four years. Those kids were off the drug for four years living in this house with their dad who is this big enforcer. Right? Yeah. And those kids are amazing. <laughs> well, they you know, had their emotions for that long. You know what that reminds me of is um, kids being able to pick up languages. Yeah. So they learned to speak the language of no emotion, no displayed emotion. And they were able to do that because of how, I don't know, how uh, adaptive or absorptive they are of sensory information. They did it well, too, and even better than him. Because Preston didn't go for very long off his meds before he just couldn't really keep it under control anymore. Yeah, I was surprised at how much emotion he was allowed to display in the film and not be found out. I was surprised by that, too. Yeah. Because they, they still, I mean, I guess, you know, spoilers, of course. Uh, they allowed him to see the father, but that was a, a trap. So perhaps they did know, but they were like, okay, we still, you know, we want him to think he's one. And so they bring him into the, um, you know, the, the sit down with father with his uh, katana blade. And they're like, all right, give up your weapons. And should we, should we get to the, uh, the climactic scene? We, we sort of touched on it before, unless there's any other scenes or components, because I think we're, we're getting near the end of uh, our normal episode length here. So I want to make sure we don't miss anything, but we do have to cover the ending and get to the ratings and all that. I'm, yeah, good. I'm good. Let's move on. Yeah, I'm good. All right, so let's get to that climactic scene. So there's the sort of double cross. 
where uh, Bale had actually committed the uh, self-defense shootings of the enforcers out in the nether region. And when he is uh, out on another raid and he's actually helping some of the um, dissidents try to escape and, and they have trouble believing him, uh, which makes sense, you know, because like cops are allowed to lie to you. It doesn't, you know, <laughs> doesn't yeah. hold in court if they lie to you. Uh, so they, of course, question him and say, oh, as soon as we run, they'll just, he'll just shoot us in the back. And he's like, no, if, if I was going to shoot you, I'd shoot you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> but then he, he you know, tries to help them escape, and of course they get caught, and uh, the Ty Diggs character uh, has them all murdered, but in that process, he switches guns with Ty Diggs, and then later on, um, when he's in front of the uh, father and, and Ty Diggs thinks that it's Christian Bale is going to be found out as the murderer, because he'd switched the guns, they pulled Ty Diggs away, and, and as an audience person, you know, viewer, you think, oh, good move, you know, you, you turn the tides on this guy and then later uh -huh. on when they, when they finally do have the final climactic scene Ty Diggs is like nah we fucking fooled you man <laughs> but then Bale's so good he kills all the Katana dudes and after what you think is going to be this knockdown drag out fight with Ty Diggs it's over in like three seconds and he yeah. takes his face off <laughs> yeah that's one move <laughs> yeah I kind of like that scene because when he took out all the Katana guys you could see the Ty Diggs. He he got this worried look on his face, like, "Oh wow, I didn't." Yeah, more emotion. That. More emotion. <laughs> <laughs> Which really surprised me because Ty Diggs is supposed to be super super awesome badass guy, right? Well, because uh, after they had their sparring match or whatever, and it you know you were kind of supposed to think they were evenly matched after the sparring match they did. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And then Ty Diggs gets his face cut off right away, and so then when the father comes out to fight, and he's like way better, that, that uh -huh. just kind of blew it for me. I mean, maybe like what Robert was saying, he rose up to the ranks and he was also equally skilled or better skilled and, and was um, still practicing and still uh, good at what he was doing because as they displayed, you know, they were doing all this like crazy hand fighting with the guns, which you sort of have to have that. Like you can't just cut the guy's face off and then done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There has to be some kind of threat, some kind of competition there. It can't just be he mows through every single one of these soldiers and the other clerics and then he's just the best ever and there's nothing hard for him to do. I mean, yeah, he is he, a hero. He has, to, he has to get challenged. He's got to work for it a little bit. Yeah, and I was, uh, I was sort of surprised that they didn't um, end up sacrificing him because it did seem as if when the underground was sending him in that it was like a suicide mission, like you might not be able to accomplish this or you'll die in the effort, which is sort of the 13 Assassins thing where... His goal was to die in glorious battle, and so that's he sort of left himself exposed. Uh, Shinzaman did uh, in order to fulfill his desire to meet an honorable death as a samurai. And I thought that they would play into that with this movie, but they didn't. And then it, it all of a sudden, as soon as the news of father is dead or, or non-existent, then the populace rises up against every enforcer, and then the movie just kind of ends. Well, yeah, a little bit too neat and tidy for me, honestly. Um, I'm not a huge fan of violent revolutions because you usually just set up a new government that yeah. becomes equally horrible. <laughs> but, um, yeah, if, if, in terms of the hero and Bale's character, I would have liked there had been some kind of cost involved. There really wasn't. I mean, he didn't lose either of his kids. I mean, he did lose that one lady and he liked. Wife. And his partner. And his wife earlier, but that was, you know, him. But in, in, the, in the course of the rebelling against the father... You know, in terms of like making choices and having sacrifices, he really didn't really didn't sacrifice anything. Yeah, he just straight dominated when it came yeah. to, to that part. 
mean, if this was Star Wars, he would have like, lost a hand at least or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if it was Rogue One, he would have died. Everyone would have died. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you don't fit into the next story, so <laughs> you, don't, you don't fit into the sequel. <laughs> right. Well, if it was going to be a truly dystopian film, they would have they would have killed him. Like the real father would have came up behind him there in that end scene and and uh, uh, shoved a sword through him or something, and then laughed maniacally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now there was there was a moment um, when he's talking to the folks in the underground where he says, "How do I know if I kill the father that another Hydra head won't just poke up and and be something worse?" And I thought that that was a good question. You know. Uh-huh. Like, if you knock down uh, a current dictator, what's to say that you're not going to get a worse dictator? Yeah, yeah that thought crossed even, my mind. Like Robert. Yeah, said. even in the in the movie, they said that the 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 father guy. He just says like, yeah, the real father died a long time ago. The council just appointed me. So when he kills, gets killed, then what's to stop the council from just appointing another person? I mean, I guess yeah. the big rebellion and whatnot. But well, the, yeah, I the, that, the the underground I think was banking on you know once we destroy the Persian factories. And everybody goes at least a day without their meds. Yeah. Once people start feeling again, like this is going to be, you know, this is going to be what saves us. And of course, we don't see the result. We don't know if this really was the answer to all their problems or not. Right. Yeah, it almost had the vias for vendetta turn at the end, where all of a sudden there was this mass uprising among the the worker bees. Well, yeah, and I think similar. I think at the end we were supposed to understand that that was just all of the underground, the people that were part of the underground. Oh, yeah, were, he did say there's more of us than you think. They were, were finally revealing themselves. Yeah, did you guys get the vibe that um, in watching this now as ANCAP voluntarist that he almost identified as being part of the underground and that there are more of us than we think and that we are principled and that we are making a difference? I don't know. I, I know it's not what they intended in the movie, but <laughs> in watching it, it's like, man, I kind of feel like this, you know? Yeah, oh, yeah. You, yeah, you did really resonate, or at least I did anyway. I felt with the underground leader, what was his name? Jurgen, I think. William Fickner played his character. Uh, he he seemed like a really, I don't know, because he felt like he was, where they kind of got into this discussion about discussion about feelings, and he was saying that, you know, it's a matter of control. Like, some of us who can feel, you know, we have to kind of suppress them willingly in our effort to... Uh, free everybody else and he was kind of an interesting character to me because you know he was running around in public because you saw him in the very beginning of the movie in the crowd of people that stood up and cheered the leader of the underground was in that crowd standing up and cheering with everyone else in the two minutes of hate uh, yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was very 1984 in that respect and and all the fighting was very matrix for me like I mentioned before it's kind of weird it's like uh, it's like the rap game you like take bits and pieces of um other songs and, and make your own song. So they sort of did yeah. that with this movie. <laughs> yeah, this, this movie definitely wears its inspirations on its sleeve. Well, and I know it got a lot of grief because of that. All of the pretty obvious influences that went into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's wind into the uh, overall impressions. Uh, your rating, um, I don't know if we had this during your previous um, uh, entry with us with uh, Ghostbusters, which was actually enterkey.com slash 17. But we, we have a rating system of black and gold, which is a, equivalent to a thumbs up and approval. Black and red, which is a, a terrible shit movie. Or uh, what was the other one that I had where it was kind of in between? I had it for one of the movies, like black and gray, maybe like an aggress leg, like I, I take no position, sort of neutral. So let's start with uh, Julie. Ladies first, what do you think? What's your rating and just an overall final impression on the movie? 
Well, I would definitely give it an approval, black and gold, I guess. Despite, you know, whatever inconsistencies we noticed or weren't sure if they were deliberate or not, um, I definitely thought it had a lot to say. I don't think that it was just like a dumb action movie, although it did have plenty of action. But I think it was a smart one. I mean, they were trying to make some pretty interesting points. And it's something that you spend time thinking about after you get done watching it. So I definitely would recommend people see it, even though we spoiled everything for people. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, So, ladies, second. uh, Robert, your turn, and then we'll go to Lewis. Yeah, this movie definitely has its merits. I don't want to make it sound like I hated this movie. Um, For all the reasons we talked about today, it's got a lot to say and a lot of important things to say, and you can definitely get a lot out of it. For me, it is, though, it's a black and red, and not to say that I, like, hate it massively. I'd say it's like a 48 percenter for me or something like that. It just dips over. And because every time, I, first of all, I hate it when characters are so stupid. I, hate it, I just hate it. I can't stand it when a character is dumber than your average audience member. So every time that one of the main characters or any of the characters would obviously express an emotion to the audience, the audience is clearly seeing an emotion expressed there, and then the other characters on screen don't react to it the way they do at other times. Now, you could argue that that's saying, well, it's the arbitrary nature of government to arbitrarily enforce laws. Yes, if you're going to make that point okay, but for me as a viewer of the movie, it takes me out of the movie and it just makes me angry and hate it. So every time that happened, I, I just took, took a step back and wrote an angry note. Um, so for me, it's a, it's a black and red. But not to say that you can't get a lot of good stuff out of it, and I'm sure other people are going to enjoy it and not get as upset about those little details as I did. So I'm, I'm nitpicking a little heavily, but hey, that's, that's my nature as, as a critic. So, uh, Lewis, you're up, buddy. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Before, before Lewis goes, I want to get uh, at least one of your angry notes. Just this one. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I think I mentioned them all. Just um, like verbatim, like like with anger, like all caps. <laughs> well, I did. I didn't write anything in all caps. I'm sorry to to spoil that. Um, one was the movie claims murder is only a crime of passion, and then I wrote out. Psh! I mean, I don't know. That's what else I did. All right. So, well, that was anticlimactic. Uh, Lewis, sorry, to buddy. you. To you with sports. <sighs> Well, I would say that I'd give it an enthusiastic black and gold because um, as an artist, it spoke to me a lot, uh, just kind of what I already said on the on the topic of censorship. I really like the style of the movie. Um, you know, I think it's the brutalist architecture that, that they exhibited uh, throughout. I thought that was kind of neat to see. Um, I am a fan of, big fan of sci-fi and dystopian type stuff. While it wasn't really a dystopian movie, it, it kind of had that feel in a lot of aspects and I I, I uh, enjoyed um, like the scene where they had the big blimps that were flying over the city, and then when he he uh, crawl uh, calls the the film off his window and looks out and sees the rainbow and and, and experiences uh, you know wonder at at the outside world. I thought that that was a pretty powerful moment. So uh, yeah, I would say that I would I would highly recommend it. I do understand that there's there's kind of some some logic leaps that you have to do with with every movie, but uh, I think um, for today's audience especially, I'd, I'd highly recommend uh, uh, watching it because I think that there's there's a lot to say there and a lot to think about. So, so enthusiastic black and gold, eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's going to be my rating as well. And I would tell you that the first time I saw this movie, I didn't particularly like it, but I think it ages very well, and it's one of those interesting 
situations where it depends on when and how you watch the movie uh, to where you kind of get a different response out of it. So I think that, that it becomes more relevant today with the things that I'm seeing in the news and in the media and with censorship and the Confederate statues and everyone's a Nazi and all of these things to where I watch it now and especially as an ANCAP and I, I do identify with a lot of the characters and the underground and, and being this um, sort of principled minority who's willing to I don't know, like actually make an effort to, to make a positive change in the world. And uh, Robert and I were talking um, the other episode on Pulp Fiction about culture and how culture drives a lot of policy. And that's uh, how a lot of change gets gets accomplished is, is you start producing content and swaying, winning hearts and minds. And, and, and once you have attention, then you can start uh, educating and start learning and, and start progressing things. Uh, and not in the uh, evil leftist sense of progressivism, but... Uh, I mean, an actual growth and, and, and understanding and intellectual uh, capacity, those, those types of things. So for me, I'm an enthusiastic black and gold, and uh, Pulp Fiction was Robert's favorite movie. This might be in my top ten. I don't like to play favorites, but this, <laughs> this really is up there, especially since I, I just finished watching it right before doing this show. And so I'm glad that we picked this one. Uh, and one of the other things I noticed about it was when I first brought this up in, in our actual annual creed cadre group, which is for Patreon supporters, is that I likened it to this had a different message back when Bush was president, and now it's kind of flip-flopped. And now the message is related to the opposite side of the quote-unquote index card version of the political spectrum. And it's kind of funny to see that because it really shows you that both sides are really the same coin, the same totalitarian statist coin, and the true alternative is zero statism or as minimizing statism as possible, which is what we advocate, you know, as, as much as possible, maximum freedom all the way. So that's what we do here at Actual Anarchy, Read Rothbard, Conquest of Bread, and all the rest. And that's my comment uh, and my rating on this movie. So before uh, we wind this down, uh, if you guys are able to stick around for our Kathleen Turner Overdrive and Turn the Frogs Gay, because we have the documents, uh, and anyone who wants to support us via our Patreon page that can be found at actualanarchy.com slash tipjar can get some of that content. Uh, why don't we just let Lewis and Julie let the audience know where you can find more of your guys' work and any final words before we move into the overdrive. Well, Julie, did you have anything you wanted to say? Um, no, I don't think so. Well, as far as our artwork, the stuff we do, um, it's at libertopiacartoon.wordpress.com, and uh, you can find us on Google Plus, Facebook, or Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, <laughs> and uh, um, you can check out all our unique and awesome T-shirts at libertopiacartoon.wordpress.com as well. Uh, the book, with its 99 cents, it's got a lot of awesome stuff in it. I don't want to use awesome too many times, but <laughs> but uh, it does have a lot of uh, good material, I think, and uh, it's a nice presentation of, of voluntarist ANCAP ideas. So if you've got people that you're trying to, to win over um, or be an ambassador of, maybe this will be a good tool for you. So anyway, love the movie. Glad to be on. It's always an honor, as always. Always an honor, as always. Robert, the final word. <laughs> Then we'll get into the uh, the overdrive. Yeah, thanks everybody for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. I want to thank our guests, Lewis and Julie, for coming on. It's always a pleasure. Hopefully, they'll we'll come on again in soon. And um, yeah, stay tuned for more content. Uh, support us on Patreon. You'll get all this hot new stuff. 
that we yeah, do. Yeah, the, the enhanced audio and new studio and video and slideshow, all that good stuff. And the yeah. show notes page for this can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 40. And uh, also I want to mention that we had an interview with Dr. Walter Block, and that can be found at actualanarchy.com slash Walter Block. And I do recommend checking that out. We talked about strategy with Libertarian Party and, and advancing libertarian ideals and anarchy uh, with him. And he's one of the eminent scholars in the libertarian movement. So I highly recommend checking that out. He was super great, and we appreciate having him on. And hopefully we'll have him on for a show talking about a movie sometime. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, good night, folks. We're going to move into the overdrive. So thanks for joining us. Actualanarchy.com. Check it out. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do